Well, amen. Well, by divine providence, we land in these last eight verses of Galatians tonight. This is our second to last Sunday of our first year of existence. And just as the first few verses of Ephesians were perfect for our launch, I believe these last verses are perfect for us as we begin to wrap up the year. Because it's here that Paul summarizes the letter that we've been in over the summer. Um, And he's stressing, he's stressing the same point tonight that he's been stressing throughout ever since chapter 1, verse 1. And I know that Wes has already read the passage and, and we have been recently allowing that to suffice for us as we move into the message. But tonight, I want us to hear it again. Because, again, it's our last time in this letter. And I would like us to hear these words that the Spirit might hone our attention and prepare our hearts to hear the message that is to be preached. And it's been my prayer in the words of our catechism in questions 89 and 90 that it's been my prayer that sinners might be convinced, converted, and built up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And that we would receive these words with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So let's stand and hear the word of the Lord once again. If you're able and willing, please stand in the honor of God's word again in the reading of it. Hear now the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we would ask in these moments that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. We pray that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So these are the final words. And in this passage, these final words contain really three points, I believe. And I used a little alliteration tonight. We're going to look at Paul's mood, his mantra, and then his marks. Okay, so the outline is in the back of your bulletin if you so desire to take notes. His mood, his mantra, and his marks. Let's begin first with his mood. And let's say up front that what he is communicating, he is communicating as much in or by what he does not say as in what he does say. And what I mean by that is he doesn't say what would become typical of his, in his letter writing. If you look forward or move ahead through the New Testament and look at Paul's letters and even uh, even backwards to Romans and first and second Corinthians, you realize that he had a typical way of closing his letters. 
And so if you look at those subsequent letters, you look at not only the pastoral epistles, uh, the, the letters written to churches, but also the pastoral epistles and, and what he's written to Timothy and Titus. And, and even in Philemon, uh, you see that the closing remarks of the letters are usually lists of those that are traveling with him and pleasantries, as well as final greetings and maybe even some final instructions. And then, of course, a benediction or maybe even a doxology. But here he simply closes with a final warning. Morning. He ends like he began, right? We said when we began in Galatians that there were no pleasantries, there were, there were no nice, really niceties as he began. He jumped straight in at the issue at hand and he does the same thing at the end. The greeting is straightforward. It's matter of fact. He doesn't want anything to cloud them and we could say cloud us from the purpose of his writing. And many make a big deal of the fact that he says, I am writing to you. And they make a big deal of that because it was normal for him to dictate to a secretary. And then maybe after they were done writing the letter, he would simply write his name. But in 2 Thessalonians, he says this. He says, I write this greeting as a sign of genuineness in every letter. It was the way that I wrote. So this isn't new. Uh, it's, it's not uh, the fact that he's writing this greeting shouldn't surprise us in any way. He's writing to let us know these closing remarks are important. They're genuine uh, communication. He, he means what he's saying and that they're serious. And we also know that the seriousness for which he's writing is based upon what I just shared with the children. He writes in very large letters. And he's not being sarcastic. I, I even read this week that somebody thought he's being sarcastic because and he's saying I'm writing this large enough for even the spiritually blind to see. He's not being sarcastic. He's not. I don't believe he's even describing or writing because of his own what is believed to be his own eye issue. I believe he's writing as I told the children. He's writing in that all caps, bold face, 18 point font. Because he's wanting to say to them and for them to realize that what he is about to say needs their attention. You email and I email as well. And when we want to be emphatic about something, what do we do? And that's what Paul is doing right here. You need to pay attention to this. This is serious. Don't miss and don't dismiss what I've said or what I'm about to say. But I don't think he has the edginess that he's had earlier, that he had earlier in the letter. And I believe that because of how he wraps up that last last verse in verse 18. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. He ends as he began in verse three of chapter one by speaking grace upon them. He wants them. He desires for them to experience grace, to experience God's ongoing grace. And he pronounces a benediction over them and a blessing upon them because he considers them brothers and sisters and loves them very affectionately. So there's a, a care and a concern and a deep affection for them. And so I believe in essence, Paul is saying, listen, you need to pay attention. I love you. I have what's in your best interest in mind. This is my last shot. I have one more time to say one more thing. Please listen and receive it as I intend for you to receive it. So what did he say? Well, it wasn't a P.S. 
as if he was adding something that he forgot. Oh, by the way, uh, it wasn't even a clarification or an answer to a potential misunderstanding that he was often apt to do. He would always, as he was writing, you could tell that he knew that a question was coming or somebody was going to disagree. And so he would head them off at the pass, so to speak. But he's not doing that either. He is simply repeating the message that he has been repeating all along. That's why I called this his mantra. It's the same message once again. And there are two parts to it. And the first part is this. As I told the children, reject the false gospel of salvation by faith and works. Reject that false gospel because it's nothing more than a method of self-salvation that only results in the boasting in and of yourselves. Now, as we mentioned back in chapter 5, license is deadly. It's toxic. But I believe legalism is even more so. Both are detrimental to the life of the church, as we've already talked about over the last few weeks. Both involve a low view of, of the law and a low view of sin and a high view of ourselves. But with license, it, it seems to be more easily identifiable and we, we would even say easily treatable if we could use that language. But legalism, not so much. License seems to involve more sinful behavior, just outward sinful behavior, blatant sinful behavior, whereas legalism involves moral, ethical, and even religious behavior. So you have this idea of license being associated with disobedience and legalism being associated with obedience. And therefore it becomes much more deadly. It's it's really destructive. And so Paul in verses 12 and 13 po- points out this deplorable nature of the Judaizers, these false teachers and of legalism as a whole. And he says four things about them specifically. First, he says the Judaizers are false teachers. Their emphasis is on circumcision. So their emphasis uh, on circumcision and the law. And so their emphasis is on the out. Or the external things, the outward man, rather than the internal things or the inward man. Their emphasis is on behavior rather than matters of the heart. They were more concerned with what people did, what they did and what others do, rather than on what Christ has already done through the Lord Jesus Christ. So their gospel sought to add to Christ's work. And therefore, it actually minimized Christ's work, rendering it insufficient. And why Paul says it's really no gospel at all. Because there's no good news about you and I having to do anything for our salvation. It's not good news. Second, he says that they are manipulative. He says they were forcing people to be circumcised and they were doing so to their own benefit. He says that they were only interested in themselves. They were desiring to be in control. So they were holding others to this particular standard that they themselves had created. They were putting forward standards and attempting to follow those standards and wanted everyone else to join in. And by doing so, their belief system and their way of life and the more that followed them validated who they were. And that validation was so important that they were willing to coerce and manipulate and intimidate to bring about what they wanted. 
30 says they're hypocritical. He says they were holding others to a standard of circumcision in the law, but they themselves weren't keeping the law at all. If you remember, as we've heard on multiple occasions, if anyone is going to keep the law for salvation, they must keep all of the law, every single bit of the law, all the time, perfectly. And no one can do that. So they weren't doing what they were expecting of others. And Paul says, you're not doing that. You're living hypocritically. They're living hypocritically. So holding others to this standard, you can't hold others to a standard that you yourselves aren't keeping and can't keep. And to make matters worse, deep down, they knew they couldn't. And so they were very picky about they would pick and choose what they and others should follow and what they shouldn't. Because they always wanted to choose those things that made sure it was manageable and within their ability. And then lastly, he says that they're selfishly motivated. A couple of motivating factors here. One is fear. They didn't want their fellow Jews to begin to persecute them. Why? Because remember, Judaizers believed that things began through faith in the Lord Jesus, but then they had to add their works as well. So they, they were believing in faith in Christ, their fellow Jews. If that's all it was, their fellow Jews would have begun persecuting them. And so they added their own works to eliminate that persecution. They eliminated the fear that was present. So they were more worried about the impressions and the acceptance of, of others than they were the, the Galatians. Those who were hearing the message. And at the same time, they wanted to boast in the Galatians following them. Why? Because the more people that follow, the better leaders they would have been believed to be. The, the bigger the crowd following, the better the leader must be. So the bottom line was they were, again, more concerned about themselves and their own following than they were the Galatians. And brothers and sisters, absolutely nothing has changed between... Then and now, legalists, legalism looks the very same way. They remain false teachers. They're externally motivated, not inwardly motivated. They continue to add to the work of Christ. They continue to take away from the work of Christ by doing so. And they're more interested in their own obedience, the obedience and their obedience of others, rather than the passive and active obedience of Christ on the behalf of sinners. They deny the sufficiency of Christ And they put forth this self-salvation that's contrary to the gospel. They also are manipulative. They seek to be in control. They keep adding standards. You meet those standards. They're going to create other standards to continually. And they're going to continually point out how others aren't meeting those standards. They're quick to point out people's shortcomings. And and that leaves people on this treadmill of merit-based salvation. And all they lead others to do is to work harder. And by the way, their number one enemy is freedom. That's why they want to destroy it. Because if the people have freedom, those in power lose control. Today, they're also hypocritical. And really, if you you look or watch long enough, you'll see that they also tend to protest too much. And what I mean by that is they will be vocal. They have this tendency to be very vocal and turn certain virtues and vices into their soapboxes. And they get on those soapboxes all the while secretly they're not meeting their own standard. 
And what happens? They're adamant and stringent about things. So, for example, they're adamant and stringent about certain particular sexual sins, but they themselves are living in darkness and are participating in their own types of sexual sins. Or they look down on others who've been divorced or whose children um, have, are wayward. And all, all, all the while, their homes are in disarray. They speak of character and honesty and integrity, but when no one's looking, they're lying and cheating and stealing from their friends or co-workers and even their family. It's common. And finally, of course, they're selfishly motivated. The facade that they've created looks great on the outside, but hides chaos and insecurity on the inside. They fear rejection. They want to look good. As they possibly can in the eyes of others. And so prestige is what it's all about. And, what, and, and they looking to gain that following so that they gain that prestige. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to get that big crowd to follow. And again, they're more interested in themselves than they are those that are hearing them. Their number one priority is to validate, to be validated and to be successful. And they don't care about others. They just, they just want to self-exalt. And Paul's words here, as they have been, are the same tonight. For the Galatians and for us. He says, reject it. Reject the teaching. Turn away from it. Have nothing to do with it. And call them out. Call them out. Reveal the insidious nature of the vile falsehood of their so-called gospel. He doesn't mince words. What they're teaching is toxic. And it'll kill them. And it will undermine the church. In the end, they're, they're only proud of their own obedience. And only boast in themselves. And he says that's contrary to the gospel. And they'll destroy the church from the inside out. But that's just part one. Part two of this mantra, as we've heard all summer long, is reject the false gospel. Embrace the true gospel. Embrace the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Because that gospel, the false gospel, leads to... Boasting in yourself, the true gospel leads to boasting in the cross of Christ. Boasting in the cross of Christ. Rather than impulsive, rather than boasting in about in and of himself, about himself, in his own work, in his own achievements, in his own successes, in his own effort, Paul says he boasts in nothing but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this is more than just a mere bragging. John Stott describes boasting this way. He says it means to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, and revel in. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attentions, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. So let's take that and think about Paul's words of him boasting in the cross. So that means that Paul's boast, his obsession, that which filled his horizon, that which engrossed his attention, that which absorbed his time and his energy was the cross of Christ. 
And we need to think, you know, that, that's a powerful statement, but we need to think of it in terms of what his original hearers would have been saying, because at that time it would have been very counterintuitive, if we think about it, because the cross at that time was not this, was not jewelry worthy. There was nothing beautiful about the cross. It was a horrible, horrible instrument of death and humiliation. And Paul says, that is my boast. That is my boast. Why did he put it that way? Because his ultimate purpose, right? His ultimate purpose, unlike the Judaizers, his ultimate purpose was to point people to Christ. That's what he wanted them to hear. The Judaizers or legalists were looking to themselves. They were looking at their own self-salvation. And Paul says that's completely erroneous. Salvation is only possible by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It was his substitutionary death on the cross that paid the full and final and complete debt of all sinners who would look to him in faith and trust for their salvation. God's wrath was satisfied on their behalf. God's disposition was changed towards those who would believe because of Christ and his cross. So Paul says, it's impossible. It's impossible to boast in yourself and in the cross at the same time. They're dead to one another. It's impossible to boast in the things of the world and to boast in the desires of the things of Christ Ultimately, he says they they had nothing to boast about in their salvation because it was in him alone. They could only boast in him, only boast in the Christ, not in them in Christ, not in of themselves because they didn't they had nothing to do with it. And he repeats almost verbatim what he said in verse six of chapter five. Right. Circumcision doesn't add anything. Uncircumcision doesn't subtract anything and it doesn't add anything or subtract anything because the only only thing, the only person who takes away from our ledger and adds to our ledger is Christ. The only one who takes our sin, we don't do it. Christ takes our sin, wipes that ledger clean through his blood, and then he imputes his righteousness and his holiness to our account. He does it all. And he says, really, the bottom line is nothing, nothing is, nothing ultimately counts other than the fact that you're a new creation. That's all that that's all that counts. And by the way, we don't create or recreate ourselves. So we can't boast in that either. Salvation is internally generated and externally exhibited, not the other way around. And so we have to come to a place. It's it's not until we come to the end of ourselves and realize that we can't do anything to save ourselves that we then have the opportunity to be saved. Luther puts it this way, God creates out of nothing, therefore, until man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. We were spiritually dead. And it's only by grace that the Spirit regenerates us and brings us to life. And it's at that point we recognize our sin and our spiritual depravity and our bankruptcy and our inability to save ourselves. And again, by grace, we come to repent of our sins, trust in Christ by faith alone, and we're saved. 
It's all God's doing. It's all his doing. And then he returns to what he said in chapter 3. He says, if you will walk in this way, walk according to this standard, this canon, really the word there. Peace and mercy are yours. Walk in this way. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. The church, the true Jerusalem, the true, excuse me, the true Israel is made up of those. All of those who are not getting what they deserve. Because they're looking to Christ by faith. And they're at peace with God and they're at peace with those around them. Because they're relying upon Christ and His cross. Period. So the question really for us in the room tonight is, is a simple one, I think. What are you boasting in? What are you boasting in every day? Are you boasting in yourself? In your work? In your effort? In your achievements? In your successes? And you're standing in, as if you're standing in your position is, is ultimately about you? Are you trusting in yourself for your salvation? Are you ultimately boasting in you? Or are you trusting in Christ and boasting in His cross? There is no hope. Other than his cross, there is no other means to freedom than his cross. And so like Paul, I would say tonight for all of us, we need to reject legalism and embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Always and forever. And that brings us to the last point in verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear my on my body the marks of Jesus. And in some ways that... I don't know about you, but for me, it seems like it, when you just kind of read it at first, it just kind of comes out of left field. What does this have to do with the whole? But really, it has everything to do with the whole. Because it's, it's, it's about everything that he's laid out from the beginning. Because the statement addresses both the circumcision that he's been talking about, but it also addresses his authority that he had to defend at the beginning of the letter. So he says it's time, basically he says it's time for the Judaizers to get off his back and to drop the circumcision argument. He's done. They're boasting in a sign that the Lord gave as if it was actually the thing signified. In other words, they're saying, well, we need to be circumcised because salvation is in the circumcision. And he's been saying no to that. And because he didn't agree with that, because he's been pushing against that. He's being persecuted. He has been persecuted because they've been trying to discredit him and his message. And so the final blow comes when he says that he's been marked by circumcision and and it didn't add to his account. But then he says, he's basically saying, look, you're counting on circumcision as your mark. And if he had been standing there and not writing this letter, I think he would have kind of taken his tunic open and said... How's this for marks? Do you think I would be doing what I'm doing when this is the result? 195 lashes. 
Three rod beatings and a stoning. He says, I got your marks. He bore them all because his boast was in the cross of Christ. And he wouldn't back down. And by doing so, he's basically saying it's persecution, not circumcision. That is the real Christian tattoo that identifies a person with Christ. I believe his point was that the Judaizers were saying someone must receive the mark of circumcision to be saved. And he is saying, no, I belong to Christ. Therefore, here are the marks that serve as signs of my faith. Vastly different. And I want to, I told Aaron on uh, Friday, I want to be very careful here. I do believe there's a point of application for us. And I want to get to that. But before I do, I want to, I want to mention, I want to say first and be very clear that there are many people today. In other parts of the world that bear the same marks as Paul bore. Every day. People are beaten. People are starved and imprisoned. And even martyred and killed. Because their boast is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens every day. Signs of their faith. Signs that you and I honestly probably will never bear. And so this is a reminder. I'll say this has been a reminder for me. This should be a reminder for all of us to to pray for those who endure this type of suffering. And I will be the first to admit ashamedly that I don't pray often enough for our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would hope that the Lord, I would pray that the Lord would bring them to our minds often and that we would be faithful in our intercession of them. Now, having said that, I also want to say that I don't believe scars of persecution are the only scars that we can bear that prove to be signs of our faith in the Lord Jesus. I believe there are other marks. Again, they don't merit or justify us in any way. They don't merit our salvation, but they do serve. Scars of life that we bear as fruit of our faith in Jesus. And and again, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about tattoos with scripture verses. And and I'm not talking about... um, Bumper stickers. I'm not talking about scripture passages on our wall. Um, I've got two out of three of those, by the way. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about significant, meaningful marks. True evidence that we are walking by faith and trusting in Christ and boasting in His cross. For example, heart surgery, chronic pain. Physical limitations, the death of a child, the unexpected death of a dear friend or parent, 
the terminal illness of a family member, physical, emotional, and even sexual abuse experienced personally or within your family, a husband's betrayal and desertion, a parent's betrayal and desertion, a friend's dishonesty and collateral damage from their life, their secret life being exposed, an unjust loss of a job, deliverance from addiction, a wayward child or grandchild, the distance that now exists within a very significant relationship. I believe all of those things, and by the way, all of those things are things that have been experienced by people within this room, some as recently as this year. And I believe all of these things are marks of Jesus because in each and every case, the testimony of those who have experienced them or are experienced them sound like this. God's grace is sufficient. The Lord has been, is, and will be faithful. I'm still trusting in the Lord because I know He loves me. The Lord has provided for me. I've experienced the forgiveness of the Lord. He has granted me grace and taken that desire away. I'm seeing fruit of the Spirit even in the midst of this. My circumstances tell me I'm alone and that God could not exist, but my head and heart tell me that He has not forsaken me. And I can't explain it. In those cases, in Peter's words, your faith has been proven genuine by the testing of fire. You are bearing the marks of Jesus, marks of faith, marks of His ownership of you. You've been bought with the blood, the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are His. He is yours. Your faith has been shaken. Your faith has been shaken. By the way, admit, your faith has been shaken. But it remains true and fixed upon Christ and His cross. And in those things and those experiences, your boast has been in Him and not in yourself. Marks of His. He who has been faithful this year and in years before will remain faithful to the end when you are called home. And I would pray that we would always be ready to give a defense for that hope that we have to those around us. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word.